0: So today we're going to be having a look at David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. Anybody not heard of David and Bathsheba? Uh, Anybody not heard of David and Bathsheba? Okay, so I preached the converted this morning, which is wonderful. I have an opportunity to share maybe some insights that we've forgotten. Last time we see Saul committing his very worst sin yet as he consults a medium, resulting in his death the very next day. And I just spoke about how we should avoid all forms of uh, of trying to contact the dead or following our star signs or knocking on wood for luck or consulting with our ancestors or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the list list goes on. Uh, Saul was severely punished because of it. Now, shortly after the people of Israel uh, came to David at Hebron, shortly after Saul had died, obviously they recognized his kingship over there. And we read in Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, David was 30 when he became king. He reigned for 40 years. We know from elsewhere that he had spent seven years over Judah and then another 33 years over um, all of Israel together. Anyway, shortly after his ascension to the throne, David goes to Jerusalem and he attacks the Jebusites. Does anybody know if there are any Jebusites alive today still? Anybody heard of the Jebusites? Okay, that's good, that's good. Otherwise, I'd have to stop saying what I'm going to say. So so he attacks the Jebusites in Jerusalem. The Jebusites were in charge of Jerusalem. David attacks the Jebusites in Jerusalem. He renames the place the city of David, and he did this in the year around about 1000 BC. So Jerusalem belonged to the Jews from 1000 years before Christ, irrespective of whatever narrative you choose to believe today. It was only a hundred years ago that the people who are now laying claim to that area were called Palestinians. Only a hundred years ago. The Jews have been there for 3,000 years. Put that in your pipe, Mr. Mandela, and smoke it. So anyway, he's now established in Jerusalem and priority for him clearly is to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And I'm just gonna give you a brief overview of what's happening here. Part of that story was chap Uzzah, remember the guy who touched the ark and he fell down dead when he tried to prevent it from toppling over, and also we read that bit about how excited David was to lead the ark back into Jerusalem, and how his wife Michal, Saul's second daughter, had looked on him with scorn, and the Bible says because of her derision over his excitement of the things of the Lord, she remained childless until she died. Then we get to the story where David shows kindness towards Mephibosheth, uh, Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. He's a cripple and David brings him into the house and he spends the rest of his time feasting at the king's table. Quite amazing when we look at that story to see how David went actively looking for Saul's descendants. I mean, this guy who tried to kill him, how many times Uh, he went looking for him and his descendants rather to try and show kindness them. So yeah we have this King David, this perfect model of a perfect man God-loving, God-centered and even spilling out onto people around him. What a great chap or is he? <laughs> Let's read now about David and Bathsheba as we place his humanity more into focus. if you've got your Bibles otherwise you can focus uh, follow with me on the screen. We're reading today from 2 Samuel chapter 11, basically the whole chapter. Let's go. Verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go out to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. I think the author is giving us a clue to the story that's coming. When the kings go out to war, David's a king, isn't he? When the kings go out to war, what's David still doing in Jerusalem? So David wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was chilling in his palace, okay? So David wasn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. Alarm bells straight away. I think the point is this. When our guard is slightly down, when we think everything is wonderful around us, when we think things are going well, beware, because that's when temptation gets us. Let's keep reading. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Another alarm bell. We don't know if Bathsheba was aware of him watching or not but certainly she was close enough for him to see her and to identify that she was very beautiful. Verse 3, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. He a king who's clearly very, very proud of his own self, a sense of self-importance. He's, he's got it all. The other kings are out to war. He doesn't need to go out to war. He's chilling on his roof. He sees something he likes, sees something he wants, and he says, get her. Who is this? The messenger comes back. This is the wife of Uriah. She's married. David says, get her for me. Mm. Can't tell you how much pain David has caused me this week. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Obviously, this was a once-off lusting for David. No other sign of contact here. The king wanted and the king got, and now there was a problem. He's got a real issue on his hands. Verse 6, David sent this word to Joab. Joab was the commander of his armies that were fighting. Send me Uriah the Hittite. This is now Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Small talk going on here. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. In other words, you go down home now. You've been working hard in my army. You go and enjoy yourself with your wife, is what he's saying. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. I can just imagine Uriah must have been feeling very honored. I mean, here he is, a fighting man under Joab, the the commander. Somehow David's got to hear about his fighting prowess, and somehow David has handpicked him and brought him back for a weekend pass. Those of you who were in the army in those bad old days will know how nice a weekend pass was. This was a weekend pass that his general had arranged, and the king had come from the king. Verse 9, But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Why? Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in open fields. How can I go home to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. This is integrity. I mean, where have you ever heard today of integrity like this? On a weekend pass, favoured by the king, an opportunity to get back to his wife with a gift sent from the king. We don't know what that was, but he was sent with gifts, a gift, and he chooses to rather stay with the men. David hasn't given up yet. Verse 12, David said to him, Stay here one more day and tomorrow I'm going to extend your path. (laughs) I will send you back tomorrow. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst his master's servants. He did not go home. David tries again, gets him drunk even. This guy is such a man of integrity that even in a drunken state, he doesn't let down his guard and go and spend time with his wife. I just think Uriah is amazing. The problem is now David resolves to permanently eliminate the problem. It's called murder, and this is how it happened. Verse 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab, remember the commander, and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. While Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, ask you why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jurab Beshef? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the, lo- to the wall? In other words, we've done this before. You don't go up to the wall. Why did you do that? If he asks you this, say to him also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Talk about conspiracies, coded language, underhandedness, and Joab is right there in the midst of it. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open. We drove them back to the entrance of the city. The archers shat, shat. The archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. She wasn't longing for David. She mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased Lord. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, grant us wisdom and understanding. I pray that by your spirit, you would shine light that we would be able to learn and grow in Jesus' name. What an absolute twat King David was. I was devastated as I went through the story again this week. David's one of my heroes. I mean, the Psalms, so many of them written by him. This man after God's own heart. And yet he becomes not only an adulterer and a liar, but a murderer. And then he still takes that dead man's wife to be one of the many that he already has. David wasn't out of options when he saw Bathsheba that day on the balcony. He already had a number of wives and concubines. He wasn't a man in a place of desperation or whatever. He had plenty to choose from, but he wanted that one because he was the king. God wasn't pleased, obviously, with what David did, so he sends Nathan to condemn him. We read that psalm earlier. And the punishment for his actions was going to be the death of his child that Bathsheba was to bear for him. David tried to change God's mind by begging and pleading and fasting and praying, but it was pointless. The child still died, and perhaps we'll look at that a little bit late, uh, next week. Later, David and Bathsheba had Solomon, as we know, that was her second child from David, who eventually took over the throne from David. So this is a, just a, a terrible, crappy, mixed-up man got into a horrible situation story we're going to learn some lessons, God willing, from this today. Lesson number one is this. Temptation is not the problem. We are. (laughs) Temptation is not the problem. Temptation will always be there. Temptation will always come. We are the problem. David was obviously confronted with this very beautiful woman. And by the way, this phrase only appears a few times in the scripture. It's, it's applied to this woman Bathsheba. It's also applied to Abram and Sarai uh, when they went down to Egypt, remember? And, and Abram at that stage lied about his wife and said it was his sister. It was his half-sister, so it was kind of a half-lie. But the Bible says she was a very beautiful woman. She was over 60 Sarah was at that stage. So don't let age ladies ever define you. <laughs> and then it's also, the phrase is also used of a young girl named Abby Shag who looked after David in his old age, although he never had relations with her. And I think also Esther is mentioned as being very beautiful. Anyway, the emphasis in the scripture is never about the outer appearance. For example, Proverbs 31, 30 says, charm is deceptive and and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Okay, so let's get over the beautiful thing. Anyway, David sees the exterior. He sees this very beautiful woman, and he wants. Temptation always comes, but it's our response to that temptation that will always determine its outcome. It's how we respond to it. It's what we do with that temptation that will make the difference. Are we going to operate in the flesh when it comes, or are we going to operate in the spirit? You see, if we act in the flesh, we're going to reap from that flesh, and it's always death. If we act in the spirit and we put to death the works of the flesh by the spirit, we reap from the spirit. And what do we reap? Eternal life. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. And this is where David was. Walking on his palace roof when he should have been out at war, his mind was set on something else. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Down to verse 12, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. That's us here today, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, if you continue to live, if on an ongoing basis, you continue to gossip, if on an ongoing basis, you continue to lie, if on an ongoing basis, you continue to do the works of the flesh, you will die. That's what the Bible says. Our obligation is not to live according to it. Verse 13, for if you live according to it, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Why? Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Galatians 5 says, so I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Just stick with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Do what the Spirit wants you to do. And how do we know? Yes, we do know. We know from God's Word. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit what is contrary to the sinful. They are in conflict so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. And then he gives us the acts of the sinful nature obvious. Sexual immorality impurity, debauchery, idolatry, which is greed, greed is idolatry, witchcraft, what we spoke about last week, hatred. Do it in your hearts. It's happened. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the opposite of that is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So temptation's not the problem. We are. And how we deal with their temptation. The good news is 1 Corinthians 10 says, there's no temptation that comes near you that is not common to all man. The temptation that came to David will come to you. The temptation that came to anybody else will come to you. It's not, it's not peculiar to you. It's not you the only one who's ever had to deal with this. Mankind has had to deal with it. It says, no temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. This is the good news. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. And I don't know how many of you can testify to the truth of this. Just when you're about to lay into somebody or gossip or steal or do something you shouldn't do, something happens. God just provides supernaturally a way out. A telephone rings or a dog box or a, something distracts me. Or, it just happens all the time. Maybe I'm talking to myself here, but it happens to me all the time. Not that I win all the time. When David saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof, instead of putting a stop to those lusts right there and then, he sends someone to find out about her. Then he hears, she's somebody else's wife. Instead of putting a stop, hearing that this is somebody else's wife, he goes and sends for her. You see how it works? It's progressional. When the kings are out of war, he was at home. He's looking, checking this woman out, very beautiful, sending somebody. Person comes back, says somebody else's wife, he sends for her anyway. At least three or four opportunities for him to stop, and he didn't stop. David's lead up to committing adultery is perhaps similar to how we find ourselves in problems in life if we don't stop while we're still able to. Proverbs 27:12 says, the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. Friends, temptation is not the problem. We are. Are you walking in the flesh this morning? Flesh that will lead to death? Or are you an active participator with God in putting to work, to death the works of the flesh by the Spirit? Lesson number two being good. I'm using the word good or saved. So being born again or being good doesn't necessarily prevent bad from happening. And I know we spoke about this a week or two ago, and maybe I've said it often over the last few weeks, but stuff happens. We are human beings living on a planet filled with fallen human beings, captive to their own fleshy desires. As believers, we are no longer imprisoned by sin. Sin no longer has power over us, but everybody else who is not a believer, sin has complete sway and power over them. And we have no control over those in sin. Our focus now is looking to God for protection and sustaining power. So unfortunately being good or being born again does not necessarily prevent bad from happening. In fact, experientially the opposite is often true. Good things seem to happen to bad people and bad things seem to happen to good people doesn't make sense. I'm a good people. Why is bad happening to me? And why is the bad person getting away with all that good? Jeremiah had the similar sort of issue in chapter 12, verse 1. He says to God, you are always righteous, O, your, o Yahweh, Lord, when I bring my case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Jeremiah is saying, God, what's going on? This doesn't look or sound right. Think about Job and what he went through. Job, this righteous man. Job says, why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? Goes on to say, they spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. This doesn't make sense. Surely good should have good and bad should have bad. Asif in the Psalm, Psalm 73, verse 2 to 14, says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Talking about the wicked. Down to verse uh, 12, he says, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Asaph says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. (laughs) So you can just hear the, the anguish in the Bible authors saying what we say very often. Why? Why does good? Why do bad people prosper? And why do good people sometimes? Doesn't make sense. In our story, we see what a bad deal good Uriah got. This man of perfect integrity. I mean, he ends up losing his wife and his life over somebody's wickedness. In verse eleven, Second Samuel eleven. Uh, David asked Uriah why he didn't go home, and Uriah says, Israel and Judah are staying, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My master and the Lord's men are camped. How can I go home to eat and drink and lie with my wife? I would not do such a thing. A man of honesty, of integrity, loyalty to his leaders and his king, with several opportunities to lead the good life, enjoy the company of his wife. Instead, he chooses to stick with his men. I feel desperately sorry for Uriah, this good man, and such is life. We can do everything right but still suffer unduly. We can look around and see others doing everything wrong and still enjoying the best life. It's easy in our humanity to wonder what we did wrong when we get sick, Why is this bad happening to me? And yes, in some cases, it's the delayed result of our actions, but it isn't always our fault. Job didn't do anything to deserve all his troubles. Jesus was perfect, yet he was crucified. Paul was hard at work spreading the gospel, doing the stuff, and yet he faced huge trouble throughout his life. 1 Peter 4 gives us the solution. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. There's your answer. God loves those whom God loves. He disciplines. He treats his sons. And sometimes bad things happen to us because of the consequences of our own ways. Sometimes they don't happen for any reason that we could ever possibly know. But those times we can sit back and rejoice that God's got this all in the palm of his hand. And instead of moaning and groaning and whining and grinding, I can rather turn to him and bless his name. Bless his name in the good. Bless his name in the bad. Bless his name when my joints aren't working. Bless his name when they are paining, you know. Just bless him in good and in bad. Perhaps a hard lesson in life we have to accept that being good does not necessarily prevent bad from happening. However, as we grow in Christ, we'll grow in understanding of this truth. Our last lesson this morning from David and Bathsheba may seem obvious, but it's one we often need to remind ourselves of. And the lesson is this, our actions have consequences. When we have chosen the way of the flesh to deal with temptation, our actions have consequences. Obviously, in a big good sense as well. When we deal with it, putting to death the works of the flesh by the Spirit, we reap life eternal from that Spirit. But I'm talking in, in terms now of when we, when we use our flesh to deal with temptation. The result of David's adultery with Bathsheba had multiple consequences. And although David tried to prevent them, he could not. As a result of the adultery, Bathsheba became pregnant because God was displeased with what took place. We read in 2 Samuel 12, 14, Because God, but because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. So God tells David, your son is going to die as a consequence. I feel sorry for Bathsheba too. In fact, I feel desperately sorry for Bathsheba. If we look at her story, I think she's an innocent party here completely. I think she was product of what we know today, what is called today as a power rape. Somebody who has extreme all authority over another person. And that person is either in awe of this person and, and maybe presents themselves as uh, you know being into them and that person then takes advantage of them. Or somebody who just doesn't have the power to say no, but because of the person's status and position, they feel that they can just take advantage of that person. And I think that's what happened with Bathsheba, because she mourned after her husband died. I think this was a power rape. I think King David took her and against her will, used her and abused her. Can I give you a local example? Anybody remember the name Kwezi? with one of our ex-presidents who took a shower afterwards. Same thing, very powerful man, taking use of somebody. And even though she said no on several occasions and her testimony says her body said no all the time, yet he continued to do what he wanted to do. That same quasi I read was used and abused by ANC people in exile from the age of five years old. It's disgusting when you look at that story. Had to go into exile, came back uh, to Netherlands. Like she, she was granted some asylum with her mom in Netherlands, came back to Tanzania and ended up dying a broken, defeated person in South Africa a few years ago. Same thing, I think, with Bathsheba. Anyway, Bathsheba didn't have a great easy life, suffered from multiple life-changing traumas in the same year, separated from her husband as a military wife, taken advantage by a king, became pregnant with the king's baby, grieved a murdered spouse, married the king who already had multiple wives. She became one of the wives, and then she loses her baby. Not so much fun for this poor woman. We don't often talk about it. But anyway, when the prophet Nathan condemned David, he acknowledged that he had sinned. And this was the big difference between David and Saul. Saul tried to cover up his sin. Saul blamed others. Saul blamed the situation. Saul blamed everybody else except himself, but not David. When Nathan confronted him, he immediately repented. However, the punishment was already established, and the child still died. David pleaded, David fasted, and David begged God, but repentance did not reverse the effects of that sin. That's what I need you to see this morning. Sometimes we think we can just go ahead with the flesh. We can go ahead and our motor mouths open and we just start gossiping away. Think there are no consequences because we can repent. There are always consequences. When believers sin, they bring disgrace and contempt on God's name. Therefore, God very kindly disciplines us to bring us back into fellowship and to show the world that he does not excuse or accept sin. Nathan told David a few very scary consequences in 2 Samuel 12, 9. I'll read it to you. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? So Nathan directly accuses him of actually despising God's word. Because David disobeyed, he despised God's word. When we disobey, we despise God's word. We know that we mustn't do that and we do it. It means we despise God's word. Verse 10, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight, you did in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. That was the consequence of David's actions. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Suddenly I feel better about David. Not so much of a twat anymore. (laughs) Immediate repentance. No blaming others. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin." you're not going to die, but because of doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. So the consequences were that his secret sin would be made public, that the baby born from David's sin would die, and calamity would come from within his own family. And we see this As we read the gospel account on and on, it goes on. David's children repeated his sin and his character influenced his children's character. They watched his lust, his self-indulgence, his cover-ups, his sexual liaisons. Shortly after David's affair with Bathsheba, David's oldest son, Ammon, raped his half-sister, David's daughter, Tamar. David refused to discipline Ammon, so Taman's brother Absalom killed Ammon in revenge and fled to escape punishment. In rebellion, Absalom mounted a coup against David and briefly took the kingdom. Eventually, Joab killed Absalom. Those were David's kids, raping each other, killing each other, committing coups against David. It all went wrong, and they were consequences of what David had done. Even Solomon, who was to follow David's Uh, feet in the kingship, in brokering peace and power for Israel amongst neighboring nations. He acquired 1,000 women. I can't deal with one. 1,000 women, 700 wives and 300 concubines in his political dealings consequences of David's adultery. point is this, despite pleading and fasting, repentance doesn't exempt us from the consequences. In some cases, we don't see immediate consequence, but later we may find ourselves confused as why we are facing a particular issue. In other cases, while we may repent and be forgiven by God, we still have to pay the penalty according to the law of the land. Our sins always affect future generations, and it starts with despising the word of the Lord or not obeying it. Same thing. Sometimes our actions are hidden, known perhaps only to us and God. Jesus dealt with this so clearly when he spoke of adultery and murder in our hearts has been as bad in the flesh. You have heard that it was said, he said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the consequences may not be obvious, but they ultimately leave us broken where there is no repentance. Let me conclude. Like I said, I've been highly irritated with King David this week. What a wicked display of choosing self over God's word. Starting with being in the wrong place at the wrong time and then doing the wrong thing. But... Praise the Lord for David's soft heart, David's heart after God. Praise the Lord for David's immediate repentance, for taking full responsibility for what he had done. And I read Psalm 151 earlier, not the whole Psalm, but go and read it. Wonderful, powerful song of his genuine repentance. And this, friends, is what makes David great a heart that was soft instantly towards God. But our lessons for today, temptation is not the problem, we are. Being good does not prevent bad from happening. And our actions always have consequences. Amen.